This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Again, welcome everyone. We only have an hour worth to get many, many hours of content done, so we're just going to start with a word of prayer, and we're going to be off to the races. Is everybody clear? All right. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we're going to go. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, sunshiny, foggy day here in Florida. And thank you for the uh, safety that you've given us in bringing us together in this place. And thank you for the opportunity to study these great themes in Christian fellowship together. And Lord, I would ask now that you would bless our time together. Lord, send out every distraction. Help our minds to be clear and focused. Help our, our thinking to be sharp. And Lord, where it needs to, let our hearts be softened by your truth. Help us to understand our role in this and your role in us as we look to hasten the soon coming of Jesus Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Session one is entitled, Questions Angels Ask. And to give you a context of what we're doing, I know that the, the, the entire theme of this seminar series is victory over sin, the individual conflict. And... I don't want to start off with just talking about right, sin and here's some tips to not sin and do these kind of things. I don't want, what I want to do is set the stage and we're going to take some time and understand the great controversy in its larger context so that you can see where you fit into this. So we're going to start with a, a big funnel and then bring it down to your particular situation now, relevance to today. But we're going to start with a broad context and we're going to look at it from the biblical, uh, biblical perspective and then continue to hone down in the practical application. So to begin, let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, questions angels ask. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is having a day of parable uh, giving and teaching. And there's some multiple parables, just a list of parables in rows. In fact, it's in Matthew 13 that he talks about the purpose of parables. But in starting with verse 24, we find the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we're going to find out that this particular parable was especially poignant and was, uh, was almost, I don't know, disturbing, but it definitely was interesting for his disciples because it touched on a topic apparently that they wanted some more clarity about. And it happens to be this great controversy theme. Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, I don't think that Jesus ever just shot from the hip or just kind of mouthed off some stuff he hadn't thought about. I think Jesus always had a purpose. Every word here is important, so there aren't any extemporaneous words or superficial themes. Every word in this, he's having a, a very important meaning to. So keep that in mind as we keep reading. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Now we're going to pause right here. Who's asking the question? The servants, okay? The servants of the owner. So they are loyal. They work for him. They're his employees. They do his bidding. But they're the ones asking the questions. Now we know, because we've already just read the first part of the parable, that an enemy has done this, right? But when did the enemy do it? While men slept. Did those servants, those men who work for him, see and understand what was going on with the enemy and when he came in and the, and the seed that he sowed? No. What they knew is they work for a guy. It's a good guy. Good field. Nice owner. And he apparently told them that he sowed good seed in his field. And they look at the field. Okay, we trust you. And I'm guessing the next day, still trust you. Still trust you. You don't see it immediately, Right. But notice how the language says, um, but when, the, verse 26, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop. So it starts coming up and they might notice a little, hmm, and then it gets a little bit more and a little bit more. And finally, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't all good seed. We see tares, but you said wheat. There's a contradiction between what we see and what you said. Okay? Now, we're still loyal, but we have 
questions. Questions angels ask. Let's keep going now. Now notice what the questions are. Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Notice the implication is, we see this, but you said this. We need a clarification on what you said because it doesn't harmonize with what we see. Did you not do this? Then, how then does it have tares? I love the answer in verse 28. He said to them, yeah, sorry, my bad. Is that in there? Does he say, oh, look, here's the thing. I, you know, I, I didn't get it. I just, I messed up this one time. It, but look, we can, we, we'll work it out. We're, no. His, very, his only words, an enemy has done this. How much responsibility does the owner of the field take for the presence of the tares in his field? Zero, none whatsoever. I didn't do it. First of all, you're asking the wrong... Now, you can ask me the questions, but I don't like the implication. I reject the premise of your question. The premise is that I did it. I'll just slow down. There's another party here. Now, you didn't see it. You're going to have to trust me about that, too. But an enemy has done this. Now, watch this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Seems like they work for him, right? That's their job. Do you want us to go fix it? We'll work for you. And look at his answer. But he said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Critical, important, cannot be under, overstated. What is his reason for not uprooting the tares in that moment? Because the wheat, it's his concern for the wheat that lets him continue and allowing the tares to grow. Now, this is a radically weird thing when we start making the application in life. And we're going to see that, in but think about it. His concern for the wheat dictates his action. Let both, he says, verse 30, grow together until when? The harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers... Because does the owner of the field do it himself? Does he do all the hands-on manual labor himself? No, he has servants. He has reapers. Then I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now skip over to verse 36. Of all the parables that Jesus taught that day, one they ask a question about, and it's this one. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered them, saying, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And repeatedly in Jesus' ministry, Son of Man was a self-used self moniker for himself, right? That's me. And of course, as it goes on, it says, The field is the world. Now, who created the world? Yet yeah, God is the general answer. The specific answer is Jesus Christ, right? The glory and honor goes to the Father, of course, as all things do, but Jesus was the hands-on physical executor of the Father's will. You can find that in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. It makes it repeatedly clear, the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the creator. And so when Jesus says the world is the field and the Son of Man is the sower of the seed, that's me. He goes on to say, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the, tares are the, uh, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are whom? The angels. Go back now to the parable. Who was asking the questions? The angels, his servants, the reapers, the guys who work for him in his field. There, is it possible that you can take a very clear, that Jesus himself explains that angels are asking God questions about the great controversy. It's a powerful thought. So if you have some questions about the presence of evil in the world and what's the end result and why don't you fix it now and why do we, you're not alone. The entire universe is looking at this field and asking questions of God about the presence of evil. Angels are also asking questions. But it says in verse 40, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So again, what we're going to notice here, and this is in your notes, but if you don't have it, you can write it down. And again, we'll get the notes to you later somehow if you don't have a copy. But first of all, the owner of the field allowed the tares to grow out of his concern for the wheat. <laughs> this is why you have to have the word hidden in your heart. <laughs> Next point, it is in the best interest, think about this, think about how radical this sounds, especially when you deal with someone who lost a loved one, or is dealing with a disease or a tragedy in their life, or some sort of, uh, some situation that seems unfair. It is the, in the best interest of the righteous that wickedness continue and mature until the harvest. Think about the implications of the parable. It's in the best interest of the righteous for wickedness to continue for a while. Not without end. There is a harvest coming until the harvest. It makes it very clear. It's finite. It's not infinite. It's finite. But it's in the best interest of the wheat that that continue. Justice will be executed and the universe will be cleansed of all wickedness. There is a time of purge coming. This parable reveals the ending of sin as a process rather than an event. Please let that land in your mind. The ending of sin as a process and not an event. Why is that the case? Is this a choice of God or does logic dictate that this is the only way? Not just the best or one of several, but this is the way that the sin issue will be resolved in the universe. It's a process, not an event. He doesn't say, go pluck them out the minute you see it, or even better yet, why, not, why did you create the bad guy in the first place, right? He says, no, no, no. In the universe where everyone has free moral agency, where all of my creatures are sentient and can, re can choose and think for themselves, this is the only way to address this issue. Again, our first two sessions will cover the, f the four distinct steps of this process. We're going to be outlining that in just a second. That this process occurs in four distinct steps. And the burden of our first two sessions today is to go through the first two sessions, we'll go through all four of those. So we're going to do two of the steps now, and then when we come back from the break, the next two. So we'll get all four in the fall of Satan in our first two seminar sessions. Okay. Now, let's go to the book of Isaiah. Let's go to stage one. Isaiah chapter 14, in casting out the devil, in ending sin and destroying this enemy. Isaiah chapter 14, let's go back to the very beginning and see what happened. Again, these are passages you're likely familiar with, but let's set it in the context of angels asking questions. Angels asking questions. Isaiah chapter 14, we're going to start with verse 12. Here the prophet is reflecting on the fall of Lucifer, almost incredulous. How is it possible, he says in verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And of course, Lucifer means light bearer. He was a good guy, right? How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For, so apparently this is the reason for that fall. For you have said, and this is key, where is he saying these things? According to scripture, for you have said where? In your heart. Now let me just ask you a question. Is it possible for you to think some things inside of you that you don't express on the outside of you? Probably doing it right now. Don't want to know. <laughs> but there's an inward discussion happening in the heart of Lucifer. Now, can I read your mind? No. I can read your expressions. I can take a guess. You know, I can take a stab when you don't like me or you do or you're being fake. You know, we can guess. We can be psychologists, but I can't actually get in there, see what's going on, and read the thought patterns in your mind. I can't do it. No one can, well, almost no one can do that. Is there anyone in the universe who can actually do that? Yes. God himself, right? How would anyone know what he was saying in his heart? God knows. But think about this. Does anyone else? No, no, no. 
For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. Evangelists have used the joke all the time that Lucifer had an eye problem, right? But he was focused on himself. I will this, I will this, I will this. And, and we think, and at least the picture I had is that he was standing up on a mountain. I will be this. But where is this happening? In his heart. Is it possible that on the outside he's still like, oh, good morning, good to see you, how you doing? But on the inside he's like, you know. For you've said in your heart, I will do these things. Yet, he says, verse 15, you shall be. Notice it's a future tense, right? You said it in your heart, but there's a day coming. You shall be brought what? Down to Sheol, to the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, we often stop there, but please look at verse 16. Those who see you will gaze at you. And what's that next word? And consider you. Give me a synonym for consider. Ponder, think, question, reflect, mull over. I mean, they're going to wrestle with this. They're going to process this, right? And he says, those who see you, the people who are watching this, because the question is often asked, if all of this is related to the enemy who has done this, why not just destroy the enemy? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But apparently, according to this passage, he's cast out instead of being blotted out so that those who knew him would have an opportunity to see and gaze and consider for themselves. And notice what their questions are. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you. They're going to look at you. You're going to be exhibit A. Is this the man? You know, when it's all said and done, they're going to reflect on this whole great controversy process. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? And, and you think about it, they're going to think, is it possible? You know, the prophet writes, how is it that you have fallen? How you have fallen? And the angels themselves are, is it possible that this, they need an opportunity to think? We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 28. And I wanted to show you verse 16 there in Isaiah 14 as we go to Ezekiel 28. We'll start with verse 12. And you're, you're a spiritually mature, adept audience, I would assume, that you know that he's not speaking directly to the king of Tyre here. He's speaking to the power behind the power. Right? Just like when you talk to the serpent, there's the power behind the serpent. You notice that Satan very rarely, if ever, shows up as himself. He always works through a middleman, right? Even with Christ, it, Paul talks about how he appears as an angel of light. His ministers appear, you know, puts on a front, right? So verse 12, speaking to the power behind the power, the prophet says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, you were the seal of, what is that word? Perfection. Now, there is a concept out there in the world that Satan was just bad because he was bad. Right? That he was created bad. He was bad from the start. He had bad material. He was just, he was a goof up in the process somehow. He was just a bad seed. No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible teaches. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. If we had time, we could take a look and notice that if you go back, I think I have it written in the notes there, but if you look at the, what the high priest wear on the breastplate, it's almost identical, stone for stone, line for line. This is an ordained minister of God. He's not just a run-of-the-mill angel. He's Lucifer, the light bearer. And notice what it says in verse 14, speaking of his position. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And as a good Seventh-day Adventist crowd, when you think of an angel that covers something, where does your mind go to? The Ark of the Covenant, right? That you have the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, the mercy seat itself, and there's two angels, which of course everything in the earthly sanctuary represents the heavenly sanctuary, right? 
And so he was one of those, right there, in the very presence, the right-hand man of God, if you will. Some people even believe that he was the very first creator of the being, the highest order, just shy, and there's the Godhead, and there comes Lucifer. The right-hand man of God, highly respected. His, his influence is literally universal. I established you. He didn't earn it. He, God gave it to him. He set him apart. That's a, by the way, setting apart for ministry, that's what ordination is, yes? Some versions even say, for so I ordained you. He was an ordained minister in the courts of God, representing to... Now, that doesn't mean that there was sin to have a problem with yet, right? But he was a representative. He would help guide the worship, if you will, and lead people to God. You walked back... Oh, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were how? What condition? Perfect in the day you were created. Till iniquity was found. Of course, what's iniquity? Another term for... Sin, lawlessness, transgression of the law. Okay, these are good. Iniquity, sin was found. Think about that. It was found where? In you. Very much like Isaiah. Where was the dialogue happening? In his heart. Sin was found. How can, who's the only person who can find something in you? God. God is the only one who can do that. Notice it goes on. By the abundance of your trading. Now, this is weird. I often kind of wrestled with, what did he actually do wrong? I mean, I don't like the answer. Well, he questioned God. Is questioning God wrong? I think the angels question God. I think Jesus said they do. Asking questions about God and his government and his ways is not a bad thing. We're sentient beings. He gave us a brain. In fact, he invites us, come, let us reason. So asking questions isn't the problem. But it was that jealousy, that, which is a very deep theological term, right? But it went from questions to, I'm going to come up with my own answers, you know, or I'm going to go this direction. And he starts to mull over this, and he starts to develop inside of him where no one else can see it, but it was found in him. It goes on. By the abundance of your trading, and oh, I think we have these in the notes. I want to highlight this in just a second, but keep that more uh, trading in mind. You became filled with, what's that word? Violence. Violence. So it went from jealousy to like, ooh, I want to be where that person is, to I want to kill that guy. It escalated. But still, notice what it says. You were filled with violence where? Within. Is it possible to even be hating someone and violent in your intent and motive against them and still not show it on the outside? I mean, you get the picture. Here's the right-hand man of God, the ordained minister in heaven, the covering cherub, and leading out the timbrels and pipes with the beautiful music, and he's leading the melodious song. Praise God from whom all bless. Oh, this is being recorded. <laughs> that was a mistake. Um, but... When I look out, all I see are faces and, and, and body and, and, and physicality, but I don't, see what, I don't see motive, I don't see intent, I don't see the secret hidden things of the heart. But imagine the eye of God as the worship is around, and he sees like x-ray vision right through, right? And you can just scan like the rare, and in the courts of heaven, everyone's outsides match their insides. Beautiful harmony, just crystal clear transparency, honesty, beautiful. Love abounds, the, that one beautiful rhythm that goes through, and we're going to get into all that later, the principles of love that God operates the universe under. But everyone was in harmony and agreement with this until he gets shh. And on the outside, it's... But on the inside... Now imagine... Why doesn't God just kill him? As soon as he's... No one even has to know. But let's think about that. In the middle of the doxology, God the Father stops the song. Stop, 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 stop. Slow down, everybody. Lucifer, I need you to step forward. And on the outside, he's like, yes, sir, how can I help you? 
And on the inside, it's like, wow, what is it now? And he says, you, you can stop pretending, I, I see. And on the outside, see what? what, what what's going on? You know? And he's like, please, stop, just, we're done now. In fact, you're done now. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. And the body goes back to the dust. And everybody's watching. And God says, okay, praise God. Let's go, let's go back, let's go back. Right? Do you think they'd have some questions? Yeah. Right? Like, what, uh, how's the, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, right? But, I mean, I'm not against you, but you got, uh, the thing, uh, hmm, that's tough. What was that? What just happened? And what if God's answer was, oh, don't worry. Trust me. Think about it. It's not wrong to have questions. The angels ask questions. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you. I didn't kill you. I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Basically, you got fired. You got removed from your position. But your life I allowed to continue. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Again, resonating perfectly with Isaiah 14. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And notice the same reason is given for, instead of, for casting him out instead of blotting him out of existence. I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings, why? That they might gaze at you. Same language as Isaiah for why he was cast out instead of blotted out. They need a chance to see you, gaze at you. You defiled, verse 18, your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. And what were those iniquities? By the iniquity of your trading. Now, if you have the King James Version, that says a different language. It says a different word. It says traffic, right? T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K, the old way of spelling that, right? Mrs. White makes a, a statement about this. Well, well, first of all, in Scripture, this, past, this, this term, at least the root word of that term, traffic, is used elsewhere in the Bible just a couple other times. For example, also in the book of Ezekiel, you'll see it. Put your finger there in Ezekiel 28 and go back to Ezekiel chapter 22. The same root word for trading or traffic that's employed to talk about that's what the sin of Lucifer was. Now, the N-word, of course, the dialogue, but how did it express itself? You know, he wasn't just like throwing sticks and rocks at God trying to kill him. But it was a, it's a more subtle form of action. It was trading. What does that mean? Ezekiel chapter 22 uses the same root word in verse 9. And notice what it says. In you are men who, what's that word? Slander. To cause bloodshed. Slander. If someone, what does it mean? What does slander mean? falsify, to spread rumors, to talk bad about, to run down somebody's character, to talk behind their back, right? That's what they're talking about. In fact, it's used in another place. Go back to the book of Leviticus, still keeping your finger in Ezekiel 28. Go back to Leviticus now. Chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. This same root word is employed again, except translated into a different English word, and it helps us understand the scope of what we're talking about. Chapter 19 and verse 16. Oops, I think that's the incorrect, I think that's a typo. Is it what now? 16? Oh, I don't know, no, you're right. I was in the wrong book. You're all right. Yeah. Let me tell you, Numbers 19, 16 has nothing to say about this. 
Leviticus, however, I bet is right on point. <laughs> Just a second here. I want to make sure you read it right from the word. I don't want you to take my word for it. You shall not go about as a, what's that word? Tailbearer. As a tailbearer among your people. Nor shall you take your stand against the life of your neighbor, for I am the Lord God. I am the Lord. He says, don't go against your neighbor telling tales, lies. What was the iniquity? What was the action? What was the outward manifestation of his inward jealousy? Tailbearing, right? Thus, Jesus could say in John chapter, uh, John chapter 19, Jesus, I mean chapter 8 and verse 44, speaking of the devil, he is a liar from the beginning and a f- the father of it. By the way, look, look at John 8, 44. Look at the two things Jesus indicts Lucifer for. The two crimes that he says he's been since the beginning. What are those two things? John chapter 8. And we're going to come back to this text later on in the, in the seminar, but look at Jesus says about this enemy. Speaking to the religious leaders who were being just like the enemy. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. By the way, Jesus could read their motive too. The same spirits in you that was in him. I've seen it before. He was a what? Murderer from the beginning. Now, question, who did he kill? Nobody, right? But Jesus goes on to define murder In the book of Matthew, does he not talk about murder being more than just the physical act, but down in the heart, the motive, against your brother, without cause, hatred against me? You were a murderer from the beginning, and does not, he was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The two things that Jesus talks about. He was telling lies, and he had a murderous heart. Same exact thing with Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Jesus himself, a consistent picture of this origin of evil. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Only in this context, with this study done, do I believe we get an accurate reading of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Chapter 12 and verse 7, again, likely very familiar, but let's put it in the context of, from the angel's perspective. And war broke out in heaven. Interestingly enough, that word war is polemos in Greek is where we get our English word polemic, which is an argument against someone else's position. That's the kind of war. The violence, if you recall, was within But the war, the verbal war, the war of ideas, the campaign, if you will, was outside, trading, trafficking. And the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now that is an interesting phrase, a place. Because later on, Jesus would say, in my Father's house are many mansions. He didn't say there will be many mansions. Apparently, Lucifer had a place, and all of his angels had a place. But Jesus then says, I go to prepare a place for you. Just leaving that as a little seed. We'll come back to it later. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Stage one is the physical removal of Satan from the courts of heaven. The first step in God's dealing with this enemy was to physically cast him from the courts of heaven. Cast out. But that wasn't the end of his dealings in heaven. It was his physical removal from his position, his courts, his, his office, his place. Okay? And I want to illustrate it with this. I, I like this illustration. A judge, uh, a, guy, a guy is at home and... and, and uh, 
his wife is away or something, and he has the house to himself. It's all nice and dark, and he's, he's really looking forward to this evening. He can just sit back and relax and, and, and just have a little cozy time, read a book or something. So he's tucked away in his house, and from the front, you wouldn't even think that anyone was home. And from the outside, this looks like a great place for a burglar to come in. So the burglar sees it and doesn't even put on a mask or gloves or anything. He's just going to go ransack the place, be in and out real quick, and he's gone. And he comes to the door and he starts, you know, trying to get the door open. And the man in the house hears it. And he doesn't want to get caught, so he turns off the light real quick and grabs his phone. Calls 911. I'm being broken into right now. Send the car. He's, and then he hears him. Steps come. He's like, all right, he's in the house. Drive faster. Right? So he's got 911 on the speed dial and everything. And he can hear, it's very eerie because it's a dark house, but he can hear the footsteps getting closer until he can tell he's in the same room as him. So what he does is he quietly reaches up and flips on the light switch. And for just a split second there, it's like one of those cartoons when the eyes bug out and the, you know, like, <gasps> and there's the owner of the home and the burglar barefaced looking right at each other. And he can hear on the other end, 911, how can I help you? And the burglar, like, I gotta go, right? And off in the distance, he can hear the sirens coming. It's like, I gotta go now, right? So he runs and the police officer just happens to pull up. Oh, hey, thank you for delivering yourself nicely, you know? And they just grab him, thank good timing, and they escort him away. The man in the house feels like he defended his house, yeah. All right, good, good riddance, I'm going to bed. And he goes to bed, has a good night's sleep. The other guy, of course, doesn't have the best night's sleep. He's being gone through the process and stuck in a cell and whatnot. The next day, the guy wakes up and Again, handcuffed and whatnot, and he has to go before, this, the, the, before the judge and before the, all the different uh, people, the panel or whatever, the attorneys. And so he's brought into the room, and of course they hear, all rise! And you probably know the punchline already, in walks the judge, who just happens to be the owner of the home. <laughs> and for the second time in so many days, with the lights on, their faces all just hanging out, they see each other. <gasps> And the burglar's thinking, like, I am so bad at my job. <laughs> this is, how can he get worse luck? This is awful. You know, what are the odds he's calculating, a, you know? And the judge is having a really good day. He's like, good morning. How you doing? Do you sleep? I slept great. You, oh, rough night. Huh? Oh, sorry about that. Anyway, you know. So he strolls over. And he says, all right, Mr. Prosecuting Attorney, Mr. Defense Attorney, let me just tell you, jury, you guys are all, we're done. <laughs> Bangs down the gavel, guilty. Ask a question, is the judge right in his verdict? Yes. He knows firsthand. He saw it for his own, he was there. It was his house. But is he right in his process? Of course not. Even though the judge, who's going to make the final decision, already knows the verdict, it's important to go through due process because you're in a world of sentient beings. God understands his basic premise. It's just, just as important it is for him to be right, it's important for him to be seen as right. Right? It's just as important in the, in, the, in, the, in the great controversy concept for God to be seen as right as it is for him to be right in the first place. This is the only way to win. You have to let people see for themselves what he has seen all along. You see it in Isaiah, you see it in Ezekiel, so that those who knew you might gaze at you and consider you. Stage one, he was cast out, but he was not destroyed because everyone needed a chance to see. So let's go right into stage two. John chapter eight. John chapter eight. Now we go back to that passage we referenced before, but we're not going to get the context here. We end at what time? 9.45? Okay, here we go. We're going to do the quick version and we're all going to get along. 
John chapter 8, verse 37, fascinating conversation, dialogue that Jesus has with the religious leaders. Verse 37, he starts off and says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, like biologically, yes, you could, if we had DNA testing, we could show that you were connected to Abraham, no problem with that, but you seek to do what? Kill me, because my word has no place in you. I, see, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, they claim to be the children of Abraham, and he said, no, 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 no. I know biologically you might be his, but spiritually, character-wise, you represent a different father. I represent God, and your father, and he doesn't say it yet, but he makes the strong implication that your father is not my father, and my father is God. Goes on. They answered him said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, and notice this, if you were Abraham's children, more than biologically, more than genetically, but spiritually, if you were seriously the heirs of his lineage, right? If you were Abraham's children, you would do the what? The works of Abraham. I should be able to look at you and see some Abraham coming out of you. which, long way fast forward, if we claim to be Christ's, they should see some Jesus coming out. Right? But, verse 40, you now, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. I love this logic. Abraham did not do this. Never once did Abraham try to kill me. But that's all that you do. Sneak around, talk. I know it's in your heart. You're trying to kill me. In fact, I, exact, I know when it's going to happen. You know, it's all been written down. You're playing out a script. You know it too. Let's quit the games. I've got my father. You've got your father. Let's just be honest. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we, haven't, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now they're taking it beyond the biological, they're taking it all the way to the spiritual. We are the children of God. But Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. If you like him, you'd like me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Then he goes on to say, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Notice that the same character that was inside of Lucifer is now inside of them, and they're simply going to carry out that violence that was within Lucifer all along. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He's a liar and the father of it. Now, let's think about the logic of this. If lies have been told about God, well, let's make it even more personal. If someone were to call you a liar... Notice I didn't say when someone calls you. I hope you never have to go through that. But, but if it were to happen, if someone were to accuse you of being a liar, you know what you can't say in rebuttal? No, I'm not. Because <laughs> you know what? That's exactly what a liar would say. Right? And all they would do is like, see, there you go again. So, and then you'd come back even more strenuously. No, 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 I'm serious this time. I'm really not. And they would just proportionally match you. Yes, you are. And the onlooking people would be like, if someone calls you a liar, just saying, no, I'm not, isn't the answer. At some point, you have to demonstrate the truth and not just articulate the truth. Right? Demonstration is required when the charge is falsehood. Does that make sense? That simply saying any words at all, even if they're the truth, doesn't get the job done. Okay? 
This is an important point. By the way, go back to Genesis chapter 3. We see that humanity, of course, he was cast to the earth. Humanity was born in perfection, just like Lucifer was. They had no, uh, they had no history with this sin. They, come, they are fresh off the line, brand new creatures. But, of course, Satan peddles the same lies on earth as he did in heaven. Genesis chapter 3, of course, we know very quickly. Verse 1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Of course, we're talking about the power behind the power. Of course, it was more cunning because God didn't make it like that. This is the enemy who's in the world sowing his wicked seeds. He's now trafficking and trading the same material on earth as he did in heaven. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. A little extra paraphrasing, which is never good to do with God's word. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Of course, this is a lie. But now you set up a, a choice. One person says this and the other person says that. And notice how she determines which one is right and which one is wrong. This is very important. Again, he goes on to build up on his life. For God knows, the implication God knows, and he doesn't tell you. You're being restricted. You're being held down. That in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like what? The same rhetoric that led him to rebel against God inside of himself, he now peddles here. You'll be like the Most High. You can know good and evil for yourself. God has some knowledge that, you, that he's withholding from you. You've got you to do for you. Now notice this, verse 6. So when the woman, what's that word? When the woman what? Saw. God had said, but now she doesn't just implicitly trust the word of God. She wants to evaluate it for herself and make a determination about what is right and wrong for herself based on what she sees and not what he said. So when the woman saw that the good tree was good for food, that was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, it's like, no, this is, it's not just a restricted tree, it's a better tree than all the other ones. All the other trees were good for food and pleasing to the eye, but this one has some knowledge and it's wisdom. And I'm going to exalt, I'm going to go up, I'm going to, remember that's the same, I will exalt, I will raise my throne above the stars, I will be better. Same idea. I'm going to go to a higher sphere, I'm going to go to a higher plane. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Of course, uh, Romans chapter 16, we're just going to go through this very quickly. Romans chapter 16, uh, chapter 6, I'm sorry, verse 16 basically lays out the point that whoever you allow yourself, that whoever you obey is the one that's your master. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 6, do you not know, apparently this is like common sense, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Basically the same thing that Jesus had talked about with the Pharisees, with those teachers of the law. No, we're the, we're the children of Abraham. We're children of God. He said, yeah, but you don't act like them. <laughs> you can claim that all day long, but you're really over here. It says here, look, whoever you obey, whatever your profession might be one thing, but whatever you actually do reveals your true allegiances. Now, I'm sure that Adam and Eve would have said, no, 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 we're children of God. In fact, the Bible, Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, literally calls Adam the son of God. In a literal sense, he bent down and made him and breathed him into the breath of life. He was biologically, if you want to use that term, I mean, literally, his biology was created by God. But spiritually, he's now handed over the keys to another ruler. And thus we see on earth the same thing that happened in heaven. Job chapter 1. Oh, no, we've got to go to Luke chapter 4. Let me just show you this. Satan, by the way, understands this. He even admits it. Luke chapter 4. In the confrontation with Jesus in the wilderness, notice what Satan himself says. Now, this is powerful. That Satan would acknowledge all the facts that we've just said. Now, verse 5 of Luke chapter 4. 
Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you. The implication of that statement is that he has it to give. Question, is this a lie? No. Wait, what? Now think about it now. Who was originally given dominion over this planet? Adam and Eve. But watch what he says. Why does he claim to have it? He's like, I didn't build this place. You know, you created it. <laughs> I got no problem with that. But watch this. All this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been what? Delivered to me. They gave me the deed to the place. I'm just offering to give it to you. It's already been demonstrated that it can be handed over. Here, I'll give it. Free of charge. Well, almost free of charge. Just one thing. But let me tell you what you don't have to do. Forget that cross business. Don't worry about Calvary. Certainly don't worry about Gethsemane, that the weight of sin and the, and the blood pour. Oh, it's going to be awful. You don't want to go through that. Let me just show you. Let me just cut to the end. I'll tell you the butler did it right now. We're good, okay? I'll give you the end of the story right now. I'll give you the keys to the place right now. All you have to do. So much easier than Calvary, let me tell you. And I give it, by the way, verse 6, to whomever I wish. I run this place, and I'm happy to give it to you. Therefore, if you will, what? Worship before me. All will be yours. That's why the end time issue is going to be worship, friends. That's what he's wanted all along. And he offers it to Jesus. Just, just bow down. Look, you don't even have to mean it. Just fake it. Right? Just let everyone see. Mm. Job chapter 1. Verse 6. Now there came a day, there was a day when the sons of God, just like Adam in Luke 3.38 was the son of God, these are other uh, sentient beings, inhabitants of God's created universe, sinless. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Notice also that these people have to come from somewhere to be with God. They're not just already there. And apparently there's a day when they do it, so there's a schedule. Apparently, and I know this might just really rip the lid off for some of you, but there are committee meetings in heaven. <laughs> and already some people may be like, I, you know what, I don't even want to go. <laughs> I'm no, but apparently there is, organ somehow we've gotten this, and I won't take too long on this, but somehow we've gotten this idea that heaven's going to be divine anarchy. That, oh, you get a harp and wings and go crazy, do whatever you want. No, apparently you still have to show up to stuff on time. There's responsibility, there's stuff to do, right? And Satan also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Which again implies that all these other people come from some place, or some places, they're taking roll call, here, 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 and Satan steps in, it's like, <clears throat> I'm here, thank you. And look at God's question, where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro, where? On the earth. Who should be the son of God from the earth, representing the earth at this council meeting? Adam. But why is Satan there? Because Adam gave him the keys to the place. Notice what he says, not just from the earth, but from going to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth on it. I, I rule the whole place. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you, what's that word? Considered. Have you thought about my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a man blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil? You may claim to run the whole place, but what about Job? Now, to, to, to have one person not agree with the rulership of the world, to our perspective, you know, over half the country doesn't like the president. I'll, I'll, my, my entire life, whoever's in, whoever's in office, most people don't like him. And okay, and I'm, that's, the end of, that's as far as I'm going to go politically. <laughs> but, in this context, having one person, you've had 99.999, the implication is there's one guy who likes God more than Satan. Come on, you've basically won, right? 
But no, 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 that's not good enough. Satan's basic argument is that every sentient being, given the choice between your way and my way, will vote for me. And God says, well, it's interesting. Have you thought about Job? He's on your planet. Now watch this. Satan does not like this. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for what? For nothing? You don't think he's doing it for free? Of course he likes you. You're paying him. By the way, what's that called in political terms? It's bribery, right? Of course you're giving him kickbacks. Look at his kids. They're all nice. <laughs> he's got lots of land. Not a boil on him. Let's fix that. See if he still likes you. Right? Just go for, have you not made a hedge around him and his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, and he should say, how dare you? You're not going to pick on much. But he allows the test to occur. Why? Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And it goes on to talk about how he takes away all those accoutrements, all those, that great hedge was let down and he was attacked, right? And all that he had. And in chapter 2, the exact same language, verse 1, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And he goes through the same thing again. Now, we could talk about what Christ says and we could talk about what Lucifer says, Satan says here. But what's fascinating to me is what the sons of God say. Not one word. Now these are loyal subjects of God's kingdom, right? Unfallen beings, sons of God, representing the planet. But they're listening, and they're watching. And I imagine it's like a table tennis match. You know, they just kind of go back and forth, back and forth. They're loyal to God. But they're kind of saying, let's hear him out. We need to see where this thing goes. So God allows the test to occur for the sake, I believe, at least in this particular part of our seminar, for those onlooking, those who are considering him, those who are watching. You've got to watch the whole thing, play the tape to the end, see how it works out. Okay? Isaiah chapter 56. In this context... I think this passage is particularly pertinent. Isaiah 56, in verse 1. Notice the prophecy. Of course, Isaiah prophesies about Jesus coming. And notice what it says here in verse 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Again, prophetically looking toward the first coming of Jesus Christ. And my righteousness to be what? Revealed. Something had obscured the righteousness of God, namely those accusations of falsehood, the lies, the traffic of Lucifer, both in heaven and on earth. And God says, all right, you wait. You're going to see for yourself my salvation. My righteousness will be revealed in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. The apostle writes, He who sins, and this, think, think of how this parallels John chapter 8. Right? He who sins is of the devil. Regardless of your genetic heritage, your, your biological lineage, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned when? From the beginning. And he's not talking about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of the great controversy itself, the sin problem, before we were on the even on the page, right? He who sins is the devil, for the devil have sinned from the beginning. And notice this, it is for this purpose that the Son of God was manifested. God came to this earth to deal with something that started before we even existed. Think about that. You ask people, hey, why did Jesus come to the earth? Well, to save me. Which is true, by the way, I'm glad that salvation's part of the process, amen? It's great. 
But let's not kid ourselves and think that's the whole process. There was an issue that started before we created that Jesus Christ came to this earth to answer. And notice it's for those other onlooking intelligences that he came to do this. John chapter 12, verse 31. By the way, the other way that we know that Lucifer wasn't lying when he called him, basically claimed himself to be the ruler of this world, is because someone else verified that. Who was that? Jesus Christ. John chapter 12. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the what? Ruler of this world. Who's he talking about? Satan. But he says now, looking forward to his death on the cross, which we'll see very clearly, this is exactly what he's talking about. Now the ruler of this world will be, what's the word? Cast out. I thought he was cast out 4,000 years before. I mean, did he get back in? No, he lost his place. What does it mean that he's going to be cast out? The ruler of this world will be cast out. And he explains how, verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, again, a reference to his death, will draw all peoples to myself. And just in case you're not clear what that's talking about, verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. He says, the ruler, and at this point, Satan was still the ruler of this world in the minds of those onlooking heavenly beings. But he says, now watch. Keep gazing, keep considering, and watch Calvary. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says in this thesis statement of the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, now it is modifying or is a reference back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his ministry for his death on our behalf, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, in it the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. Same thing Isaiah said would happen. The righteousness of God would be revealed. But where would it be revealed? Now, I believe it was revealed step by step all throughout the life of Jesus. More and more clearly revealed. You can take statements from Desire of Ages, and and I'll get the reference at some point for you, but she makes reference at, uh, at one point that he began to reveal the character of Satan with this action. But the culmination happened at Calvary. The culmination happened at Calvary. And we find this, by the way, in Revelation chapter 12. Go back now to Revelation chapter 12. I believe that in Revelation 12, you see all four stages of Satan's fall. We're almost done. Revelation chapter 12. After we read about verses 7 through 9, the first casting out, notice what it says next. Verse 10, then, and the last thing it says, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Last statement before we leave. Desire of Ages 761. Could one sin, speaking of Christ's death on the cross, Could one sin have been found in Christ? Had he in one particular yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture, which of course would have been his motivation, right, from the earthly perspective? That's what he was crying out in in Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way. And Satan says, hey, I've got another way. We both know you don't want to do it. Let's be honest. Had he yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture, the enemy of God and man would have triumphed. Christ bowed his head and died, but he held fast his faith and his submission to God. And now notice this. Of all the places you could make a biblical reference, a scriptural reference to the death of Jesus on the cross, you would think it'd be one of the Gospels. Or maybe something from the writings of Paul, who vowed to only know Christ and him crucified, right? But where does she go? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the, accuser of our, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. 
which accused them before God, for God day and night. What does it mean? Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before whom? The unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. Notice the righteousness of God would be revealed and also the character of Satan was revealed in the same act. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the, look at this language, the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Is it possible that there were still some people 4,000 years after he was cast out of heaven who were heavenly beings who still had some level of sympathy for Satan? Now this doesn't mean like, oh, he wish he, but it's like, let's listen to his ideas, let's hear him out, let's see where this thing goes. But notice it says, by shedding that he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings, henceforth his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilements of sin. And I don't believe he couldn't come back in because God built a big wall and physically kept him out. I'm guessing he couldn't come back in because no one was listening anymore. So now if he tries to come back to the, con to the conference room, to the meeting... All the sons of God would say, hold on, we got this one. You out. Save your arguments. No one here is listening anymore. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Powerful stuff. I know we've run over time. Has it been clear, though, so far? All right, praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study these great themes. Continue to give us clarity and help us be grounded in your word so we can look to Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you so much. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.